0: Later this afternoon, I am looking forward to making my first batch of the season, my first of what I'm sure will be a few batches this season, of my mom's pumpkin bread fruitcake. Now, I know that not everyone likes fruitcake, and that's okay. You don't have to have any. You don't get to have any if you're not going to appreciate it like you should. Uh, this is uh, something that my mom made every year when I was growing up. You know, it's one of those foods that for me just says, ah, oh, it's the holidays. You know, and uh, my mom, as she uh, was getting uh, closer to her passing and was struggling more with dementia, she wasn't able to make it for a few years. But a couple years after she had died, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to get that recipe and I'm going to make it. And I discovered, so I got it from my dad, and I discovered that the recipe is actually pretty straightforward. It's not really that hard to make. The toughest part has been finding the candied fruit that goes in the fruitcake. The first time I made it a few years ago, I I was looking in stores for candied fruit, and I realized I must have missed the very narrow window in which grocery stores stock candied fruit. I, I looked all over town over like three or four days. I went to probably half a dozen grocery stores, and I could not find it. Finally, I found it just barely enough, and it was super expensive, but I was able to get it. So I learned from that experience to not just naively assume that I can walk into a store and buy candied fruit. It's really more of a hunting process than just going and gathering it. So I I start looking for it in November. Where is it going to be? Where am I going to find it? I knew that this weekend I wanted to make the fruitcake. So last weekend when I went grocery shopping, I was looking for it. And it turns out, uh, just public service announcement, they don't have any at Walmart. (laughs) Or or at least they've hidden it really well. So they didn't have any there that I could find. Uh, I went to Safeway. Safeway, it's at the back of the produce section, and they were almost out. They had half of what I needed. So I bought that, I cleaned them out, and then I went to Save Mart. At Save Mart, it's at the front of the produce section, conveniently the opposite of other stores. And so it took me a long time to find it but I found it and they had enough for me to get so that I can make the recipe this afternoon. It's not super easy to find the candied fruit but I persevere in it because I really want to make the fruitcake and you can't have the fruitcake without the fruit. There's not really a substitute for it, it's an essential ingredient. You know when you're making a recipe there are some ingredients that you can swap out and substitute. And then there's others that it's just not going to work if you don't have that ingredient. I remember uh, several years ago, when our kids were younger, we had one of our nieces watch them while Echo and I were out, and our niece wanted to make them a box of macaroni and cheese, which, that's fine, that's great. The only problem was we didn't have any milk. And so our niece was looking for a substitute in the fridge of what could she use for milk, and she landed on ranch dressing. So I don't know what she made, but I don't think it qualified as macaroni and cheese. Because it turns out that dairy, the milk, it's a pretty important ingredient. It's kind of essential if you're going to make it and have it taste the way you want it to. There are some things, not just in recipes, but in other areas of our life that actually are essential. It's not a luxury. It's not something we would like to have. It's not something it would just be nice to have. It's something that we actually truly need. It's essential. There's no substitute for it. You need fuel for your car to go. It's essential. Power is essential for the lights to work. Oxygen is essential for us to breathe and be able to live. These are things we really, truly need. And that's true in our spiritual lives as well. There are some things that there's just no substitute for that we absolutely need if we're going to be spiritually functional, vital people. We're going to see one of those as we come to God's word today. We're, we're continuing to look at the, the book of Exodus and the experience of Moses and the Israelites. And we're going to see today Moses contending with God for something that he knew was essential for him and the Israelites to have. They couldn't function without it. And what was essential for them is essential for us as well. It's what we've been talking about all through the series we've been in and that we're finishing today. It's the presence of God. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it to Exodus 33. We're going to start in some verses there. But you remember back a couple weeks ago in Exodus 32, we saw that the Israelites made and bowed down to a golden calf. They worshiped that. They broke their covenant with God as soon as they had made it. And at the end of chapter 32, Moses says to the people, perhaps I can make atonement for your great sin. And so he goes to plead their case with God. Now you can read the end of chapter 32 and the beginning of chapter 33 for yourself, but basically what God says there is, look Moses, I'm going to fulfill my promise that I made to get the people to the promised land, but I'm going to do that by sending my angel ahead of them to prepare the way, but I'm not going to be with you, I'm not going to be in your midst. God says the people are just too rebellion and stubborn, I would end up destroying them, so forget it. God basically says, just forget about the tabernacle, don't bother with it. Because the whole point of the tabernacle was so God could dwell with his people. And they're saying, that's not going to happen. Well, Moses isn't content to let that be the final word. And so we're going to see his response to the Lord this morning. Would you stand with me and follow along as I read for us from Exodus 33, beginning verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face. For no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Well, Lord, this is an amazing passage of you uh, meeting Moses and answering his request. And we're so grateful for what you want to say to us by your word, by your spirit this morning. So we say yes to that work, Lord, have your way. Open the eyes of our hearts that so we can see you more clearly. Open our ears and our minds that so we can hear and understand all that you want to say to us today. And Lord, would you be present in this place and quicken our hearts so that we'll respond to you in the ways you want us to respond today. We don't want to just be hearers of your word, but doers also. May it be, Lord, in your name. Amen. Man, you may be, may be seated. <clears throat> Something that's always caught my attention in those verses I just read is that in verse 14, the God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then in verse 15, Moses seems to argue with God to do the very thing that God has just said he's going to do. And it helped me this week to realize that when God says you there in verse 14, that you is singular. He's speaking just to Moses. He's saying, my presence will go with you, Moses but not necessarily with all the people. I will give you, Moses, rest, but not necessarily all the people. And as Moses hears that, he understands that's not going to be good enough. That's not going to work. What he needs and what the people need is the presence of God with them. And so he makes that shocking and bold statement in verse 15. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from this place. If your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us from your place. It's not going to work if you're not with us. We need your presence and there's no substitute for it. When Moses here is talking about the presence of God, he's talking about what we might call the manifest presence of God, not just his omnipresence. It is true that God is present everywhere in the universe all the time. There's nowhere you can go to get away from Him. That's true, but that's not exactly what Moses is talking about. He's talking about the presence of God being with the people in a way that was tangible, that they could notice, that they could sense, that they would know experientially that God is with us. And that manifest presence of God for Moses was not a luxury. It was not something that it would be nice to have. It's not something that he would prefer to have. He understands that that is essential and there's no substitute for it. It's not enough, God, if your angel just goes before us. We don't just need your angel to win some battles. We need you with us in our midst. It's essential. And what was essential for Moses and the Israelites back then is essential for us as God's people today. We need God's presence with us. We can't function the way we're supposed to function without it. We can't be who God designed us to be. We can't do what he calls us to do without his presence. We need God. We need his presence. There's no substitute for it. It's essential. Today as we look at these verses and some other passages in the last chapters of Exodus that talk about God's presence, I want us to see why The presence of God is essential for us as God's people. We'll actually see three reasons why. And as we think about these, I also want us to be pondering the level of desperation we're going to see in Moses for the presence of God and how that may compare to our own level of desperation for God's presence. But Let's think about why the presence of God is essential for God's people. First of all, it's essential because God's presence is what defines us. It's what should define us and set us apart. Look again at the end of verse 13 and verse 16. Remember, Moses says to the Lord, that this nation is your people. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? See, Moses understood that what was meant to set apart the Israelites was the presence of God with them. There were other people's Around them, who were circumcised. There were other peoples who offered sacrifices. There were other peoples who had sanctuaries to their gods, even sanctuaries that had the same basic layout as the tabernacle. But none of those other peoples had the presence of God with them. That was, again, the whole point of the tabernacle that God would dwell with his people. In the inner chamber of the Israelites' sanctuary was not a statue of their God as was the case for all the other peoples around them. There in the most holy place, above the, the Ark of the Covenant, between the wings of the cherubim, the manifest presence of God dwelt with his people. And Moses understood that's what distinguishes us. That's what sets us apart. That's where the source of our identity is. That's what defines us as a people. Now, this is something that the Israelites could not Uh, control. It wasn't something that they could manage. God had to choose to dwell with them, and he had chosen to dwell with them, but it was his choice, not theirs. Their choice was whether they were going to submit to that reality and live in light of that and treat that as what was going to define them. I think this is why they were so easily persuaded to follow another God when they made the golden calf. It's why they wanted a substitute God. And it's why we're tempted sometimes to, to uh, devote ourselves to substitute gods in our lives. Golden calves are really tempting because a golden calf is a God that we make and therefore we control. It's a God who stays where we put him. Like we can haul him out when we're ready for some religious activity, but then we can just put him away when we want to get back to normal life. A golden calf is a God who we define. And what we need, and what Moses knew the people needed, what we're talking about this morning, is the presence of a God not who we define, but who defines us. It's not a God who we control, it's a God to whose control we submit. Now these words like submit and dependence, these are not really popular words for a lot of people, and so that's why it's tempting to want to find these substitute gods, and it's why it's tempting to want to try to find the source of our identity— somewhere else other than in God's presence with us and the relationship that he wants to have with us. We are tempted personally to find our identity in other places and people trying to find their identity in in the amount of money they have or their life circumstances. They think that the family they're raised in determines who they are. They try try to be defined by their successes in life. Some people feel like they've been defined by their failures. But any definition of who we are that starts with us is bound to be distorted. It's going to be too optimistic about who we are, or it's going to be, or it's going to fall short of who we truly are and could be. That's why it matters that we look to God, his presence with us, as what defines us. And this is true for us individually, but it's also true for us corporately as the people of God. It's true for the church of God, that the church would be defined that what the church would say is most important to us is the presence of God with us. Now there are times wonderfully, gloriously throughout church history where we can say that's absolutely the case. And we can look at our current uh, context today and say there are examples of when and where and how that's the case. But we also see as we look through the church history and even we, as we look at aspects of the church in America today where we see sadly that isn't and hasn't been the case what is it that's most important to the church? What is it that, that the church relies on to z- distinguish us and set us apart? All too often it's been religious language or religious traditions. It, it's been uh, trying to control other people's behaviors. It's been you know, worldly success accomplished in some religious means. All these other things uh, can, can be treated as if they're really what's most important or what's really going to set us apart. What's really going to set us apart? But all those definitions fall short. And I just I just wonder what it would do for the witness of the church of Jesus Christ if it was evident to other people looking at us that was what was most important to us is the presence of God with us. If the first thing that came to mind when people outside of church thought about church wasn't a political party or a stance on a cultural issue or uh, moral failures of high-profile leaders or rules or control or you know some other markers of success, what if when they looked at us they said they really believe that God is with them? They really live as if God is present with them. And if I go hang out with them, I might experience something beyond my normal experience. I might become aware of the presence of God. We are dependent on God for his presence with us. And wonderfully, we don't have to contend, as Moses did, to ask God to, uh, to, to give his presence to us. God's promise that he will be with us. But again, the question is, how much does that matter to us? Are we willing to live as if that's the most important thing and what defines us? God is present with you. He makes himself known in your life. Is that a truth that defines you? Or is that just an interesting thing about you? Is the presence of God at the center of our lives? Or is it somewhere on the periphery? Is it nice that God is with us? Or is it necessary that God is with us? And as a church, how dependent are we on the presence of God? Being what defines and distinguishes us. Do we believe, according to the promises of God, that God is truly present with us when we gather? And if the answer to that is yes, then is that just an interesting thing about us? Or is that what defines us? <clears throat> I want it to be the case that the presence of God is what explains Chapel in the Pines. That if anyone would ever look at us and say, how do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? How is that happening there? That the answer would be, God is with us. And that's the most important thing about us. God is present. I hope that the presence of God is what would attract people To chapel in the pines beyond good programming or great talent or a beautiful campus and facilities i want it to be the case that people would want to come to chapel because they expect that they're going to encounter the presence of god here and that they hear stories about god making a difference in people's lives because they're here and they're encountering his presence that's what i want to be the case and part of what my heart is feeling this morning is if that's not if that wasn't going to be true of us, if that weren't the most important thing, then then let's, not, then let's not bother. Then let's not do it. If that's not going to be what we lean on and what distinguishes us is God's presence with us, then, then what are we doing? Because what's going to make an eternal difference in the lives of our unsafe family and friends is, is not going to be anything that we have to offer from ourselves. It's not going to be religious people doing religious activities a couple times a week. And the ultimate answers to the problems that our communities and our state and our nation faces, those answers are not found in resources that we have in ourselves. What we need and what this world desperately needs can only be found in God's presence and through a relationship with him. So do we join with Moses in crying out, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us from this place? If your presence isn't going to be with us and what defines us, then then we don't want to try to do it. We're choosing not to do it in our own strength. We're choosing not to be defined by anything other than you. Folks, I believe this has been the heartbeat of chapel. I'm just saying, can it continue to be our heartbeat and our passion as we move forward that we would say, God, if you're not with us, it's not worth it. We want your presence with us and we choose to be defined and distinguished by that reality. That you are with us. God's presence is essential for us as his people because it's what defines us, it's what's meant to distinguish us. But it's also essential because God's presence aligns us to who he is. Now I I love in these the verses that we just read, I love how audacious Moses is with the Lord. He argues with God. And and he convinces God of some things. At least that's how it's presented in the narrative. So the Lord says to Moses, okay, Moses, yes, I will do what you have just asked me to do. Yes, okay, I'll be with the people. And then Moses says in verse 18, now show me your glory. I just think how remarkable that is. I mean, and just think about it for Moses. He has been talking conversationally with God. Verse 11, which we didn't read, says that God used to speak to Moses face-to-face. The literal Hebrew idiom is mouth-to-mouth, like one speaks to a friend, it says. Moses has that kind of conversational relationship with God, and Moses has seen God's presence in dramatic ways over the past couple years of his life, from the encounter at the burning bush to all the ways God showed his power in the plagues and delivering the people from Egypt, Moses has just spent 40 days at the top of Mount Sinai in God's presence, where, by the way, God cut tablets of stone and engraved them with his very finger and gave them to Moses. Moses has experienced all of that, and still he says, Now show me your glory. (laughs) Moses knew that as much of God as he experienced, there is yet more for him to experience. And as he was heading into a new season of leading God's people, he's asking for a greater revelation of who God is. And Moses' example here shows us that it is good and appropriate for us to ask for more of God in our lives, to ask for a greater experience of his glory, to ask for a deeper understanding of who he is, to say, I see you, we see you, but we want to see you more. We've heard you, but we want to hear you more. We know you, but we want to know you more. And we know this is good because of God's response to Moses. God does not say to Moses, where is your faith? Why do you still need reassurances after all this time? God doesn't say to Moses, you're just chasing a spiritual high. If you were really mature, you wouldn't care about those kinds of experiences. No, what does the Lord say to him? He says yes, and and an enthusiastic yes. Look at verse 19 again. The Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And as we read past that, you saw God said, I'm going to show you as much of my glory as you can possibly handle without it killing you. God says a, a, a full yes to Moses' request. And, and what the Lord um, says is going to happen here is what we see actually happening in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 that Echo preached on last week. And as she pointed out, when Moses asked to see God's glory, God shows him his goodness. Moses, if you want to understand me more, if you want a fuller revelation of my glory, then you've got to understand my goodness. And God elaborates on the mercy and compassion that he mentions here in chapter 33 when he speaks his name in front of Moses in chapter 34. As Moses had this encounter with God's presence, he was more fully aligned to who God is. He understood, he knew God more. Because there, as Echo pointed out, there's a consistency in God. So his presence, his glory, his name, his character, his attributes, his actions, they all, they, they all go together and and so when he was in God's presence and encountering God's glory he was being made aware of who God is his understanding was deepened and this is one way that the presence of God aligns us to who he is when we're in his presence we come to understand him and know him more but it's not just our minds that are aligned our whole beings become aligned to him when we're in God's presence we become more like him there's a really vivid example of this later in chapter 34 beginning verse 29 it says when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands so this is covenant take two this is he went back up on the mountain uh, kind of went through the whole process again with the Lord so when he came down he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near uh, near him but Moses called to them So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Kind of a funny side note on these verses. The Hebrew word for radiant, it sounds like and might be related to the Hebrew word for horns. And so many medieval depictions of Moses show him with horns on his head. And so if you're ever in an old cathedral or see a picture from an old cathedral of a statue with horns, it's probably Moses. Uh, But of course, what's being talked about here is not that Moses had horns mysteriously growing out of his head it's that there were radiant beams of light shooting from his face which really is about just as remarkable this was the 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 afterglow reflection of being in God's presence you notice there it said that Moses was not aware of this this wasn't something that he had made happen he had manufactured this this was just an effect of being in God's presence and it, it gave authenticity and credibility to what he said on God's behalf when he spoke to the people. You notice it took great pains to say there that he, when he was talking to the people, the veil was off. They saw that his face was glowing. So as he was telling them, this is what God says, they knew it was the case because his face was glowing. Because he'd been in God's presence. It was this authenticating stamp. These are This is authentically from God. Now, our faces uh, are not going to glow like Moses' face did, but we are still changed when we're in the presence of God. It has an effect on us. It's it's interesting, in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul builds off of the story about the veil and the glory in Moses, and then he concludes that in 2 Corinthians 3.18 by saying, And we, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. can also be translated, we behold, or we reflect the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this part of what the Spirit of God does in our lives, the presence of God with us now, is is, um, we're in his presence, we're beholding God's glory, and we're being transformed as we do so. There's this link here between the presence of God and being transformed to look more like God. So when we think about how do my thoughts become more godly how do my words become more godly how do my actions become more godly how am i transformed to look more like god the presence of god is an essential part of that we contemplate his glory so that we can then reflect his glory we're transformed to look more like him when we think about being transformed to look more like god our will matters our choices matter uh, disciplines and habits matter, healthy community matters, but all of that matters, yes. But transformation requires presence. We won't become like God if we don't spend time with God. And when we spend time with God and we are transformed to look more like Him with ever increasing glory, then when we talk about God to others, our weights are going to come with some more credibility because it's going to be obvious the type of people we are, who we are, that we're, we're reflecting some of God's nature and character and glory. So it, we are aligned to who God is and what we know and in how we act and who we are by being in his presence. God's presence is essential for us because it defines us, it aligns us to who he is. And third, because his presence reminds us of his plans for us. Uh, look at uh, chapter 34, verses 8 and 11. This is just after that amazing revelation uh, of God. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people who you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So Moses here is again asking God for that reassurance that God is going to be with them. And God says, yes. And in fact, he says, I'm going to make my covenant with you and the people again. So this God who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin is going to forgive the wickedness and sin of his people. He is not going to let their sin and rebellion get the final word in his relationship with them. And so he says to Moses, I'm renewing the covenant with you and with the people. And so as part of that, God reiterates what he's going to do for the people. In in the covenant, God goes first. God always goes first. And so he says, this is what I'm, I'm going to do for you. I'm going to do wonders that no nation has ever seen before. And I'm going to drive out the Canaanite people before you, which is God alluding to the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would one day possess the land. So God says, I'm going to do wonders. I'm going to fulfill the promises that I made. And then God reiterates what he expects the people to do, what their response is. In verse 11 he says, obey what I command you. And then if you keep reading verses 12 through 26 is a a summary of what God's commanding the people to do. And a lot of it is repeating and pointing back to what God had said in chapters 21 through 24 when he made the covenant with them initially. So as Moses is in God's presence in this moment, he's reminded of God's plans for the people, that God's plan is a covenant relationship with his people, that God is going to do wonders and fulfill promises, and it's the people's response to obey him. So he's reminded of God's plans for the people. But that's not the only reference we see to God's plans for the people connected to his presence in Exodus. In fact, the way the book ends, the very end of chapter 40, underscores this. So uh, God makes his covenant with the people, Moses goes back up the mountain, comes back down with new tablets with the law on it, and the people do what God said to do in building the tabernacle, Moses and craftsmen uh, construct it, and they set it all up for the very first time, and then we read this in verse 34 of chapter 40, then the cloud of God's presence covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So verses 34 and 35. Show that what God has been working toward, that he would dwell with his people, has finally happened. And it happened despite Moses' reluctance to respond to God's call to be the deliverer of his people, it happened despite Pharaoh's opposition to letting the Israelites go. It happened despite the Israelites grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. It happened despite the Israelites outright rebellion and worshiping the golden calf and breaking the covenant. Despite all that, it had happened. God was dwelling with his people. His presence filled the tabernacle. And, and it filled it to such an extent that his presence was not just between the wings of the cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't just even that his presence filled all of the most holy place. The presence of God filled the whole tabernacle, the whole tent of meeting, the most holy place and the holy place. And God's glorious presence filled it with such intensity that even Moses, who had spent a lot of time in God's presence, even Moses couldn't enter. This was an amazing revelation of God's presence and his glory. This is what the book of Exodus has been building to. This is the climax of the story. But it's not quite the end. Verses 36-38 through talk about the Israelites going from Mount Sinai and continuing on their travels. This revelation of God's glory was amazing, but it wasn't the end. There was more for the people. The book of Exodus began with a reference to the sons of Israel who came to Egypt in Joseph's day, and it now concludes with a reference to the Israelites, literally in Hebrew, the sons of Israel, going from Mount Sinai, because their journey was not done. There were promises of God yet to be fulfilled to them. There were purposes of God yet for them to fulfill as well, and so they are going to go from that place because there is a destination for them. There is a promised land. God is going to... Do what he just told Moses he would do. I'm going to drive out the Canaanites. I'm going to establish the people there. He's going to fulfill the promises he made to the patriarchs. And God is going to do wonders like he's not done in any other nation. So that the people around Israel can see who the Lord is. The people are going to go to the promised land. And there they're going to show the other nations who God is. That was their mission. That was their calling. That's what God had for them. They were going to live up their identity as that, uh, as that nation of priests who would draw people to God and God to people. The, there was more that God had for them. These were his plans for them. You know, God's plans for his people have not changed in the last 3,400 years. The details are different. The circumstances are different. Things look differently for us because Jesus has finished his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. And, and we are under a new covenant that supersedes the covenant made in Exodus, But so much of what God wants for us as his people is the same. And the presence of God reminds us of the promises of God. When we are in God's presence, we are reminded that he wants to have relationship with us. In his presence, we're reminded that he does wonders. In his presence, we're reminded that he makes and fulfills promises. In his presence, we're challenged with our own need to obey what he's commanded. And when we're in God's presence, we're reminded that encounters with his presence, as wonderful and as essential as those are, are not the end of our story. Because our journey is not yet finished. There are places God wants us to go. There are victories he wants us to win. There are ways he wants to advance his kingdom through us. We still have a mission that remains. As Peter says, we now, the church, are that holy nation, that royal priesthood, we now have this role of bringing God to people and people to God. That mission that we have, the plans of God for us, requires the presence of God. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. He gives them that commission, but then he also says, but wait in Jerusalem until you receive the gift, the Father's promise, the Holy Spirit. In Acts eight, he says, you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what happens in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit comes, fills the room where they gathered, fills them, comes upon them, empowers them. And then they're able to do the mission that God had for them. As amazing and stupendous and wonderful as revelations of God's glorious presence are, they're not the end. They're they're essential, but they're not the end. The presence of God prepares us and empowers, empowers us to fulfill the plans of God, the mission that he has for us. That's yet another reason why we need God's presence, because if we try to do what he's called us to do in our own strength, it fails miserably and sometimes does more harm than good. We need the presence of God. The presence of God is essential for us because it defines us. It's what should set us apart at what should be most important to us we find our identity in God's presence and his the relationship he has with us the presence of God aligns us to who he is our understanding of him as we know him more fully but also our whole being is aligned as we're transformed to look more like him and God's presence is essential for us because it reminds us of his plans for us reminds us that there's a a, a covenant he's made with us and a relationship he wants to have with us and there are plans he has for us that require his empowering presence in our lives to carry out. There's no substitute for the presence of God. It's essential in our lives and in this church. And I wonder if we notice that we don't feel the same sort of desperation that Moses did. If it's because we've maybe forgotten how much we need the presence of God. This morning as our response. I want us to just express to God how much we need him. And how much we're we're aware that we want his presence with us. And and I want to do that uh, through worship. And so worship team, could you please come now and be ready to lead us again? I invite you to stand with me if you would, and uh, as we as we worship together, I'm going to invite you to do as a as a response is if you if you want to express God, I want more of your presence in my life, and we need more of your presence in this church. I'm just going to invite you to come and worship here at the front as we sing this song together. And there's um, you know taking that step out. Sometimes it's just helpful for us to do something physical and tangible. It's part of our response to the Lord. Just as a way to say with our bodies, not just our, our voices or our thoughts, Lord, this is really true. I really want you. I really need you. So you can even come now if, if you want. And certainly as we begin to worship, just to say, God, I need you in my life. We need you in this church. We need your presence. And this is for you <laughs> This is for men and women. Sometimes women are some of the first to respond. Good. Women need the presence of God. So do we, men. So thank you for coming and come more. And this is for you, whether you've been at chapel longer than I've been alive or whether it's your first day here. If you know you need God in your life and you say, we want to continue to keep this as the big thing about Chapel of the Pines, let's come. Let's worship the Lord together. Pray that you'd fill this place, Holy Spirit, and fill us as your people. Come, Holy Spirit. We need you, Lord. We're crying out to you. We need you, God. Come, Holy Spirit. So I'm going to uh, lead us in a little exercise, and then I'll bless us and officially close the service. And some of you may need to go Go for it. If you want to continue to seek the Lord, if you want to continue to pray and worship, please do that. But um, Kathy facilitate, you've been feeling for the last half hour that you needed to shout out, what was the phrase? Lord? Show me your
1: glory, Lord! All right.
0: So, I thought it would be a fitting way for us to uh, verbalize that. So, can we just all give us a countdown and we say, Lord, show us your glory. Can you do that? Join me in that. Three, two, one. Lord, show us your glory. Amen, amen. Chapel families, we go from this time, I bless you in the name of Jesus. And I bless you with the promises of Scripture. I bless you with the promise of Matthew 5, 6, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst Righteousness for they will be filled. So I bless you with a filling as you are hungry and thirsty for more of God, His righteousness, and His presence in your life. I bless you with the promise of Luke 11 that when we ask, we receive when we seek we find and when we knock the door's open to us i bless you with what jesus said that our father in heaven loves to get good gifts to his children he loves to give the holy spirit to those who ask him and so i bless you with fresh filling of the holy spirit fresh encounters with his presence fresh revelations of his glory in this moment in the moments to come as a church jesus we turn our attention to you and say We said, set a fire in our souls that we can't contain, that we can't control. We surrender to your way, to your will, to your work in this place. Lord, we want Chapel in the Pines to be a church that always puts you first and understands that your presence with us is what matters most. There's no substitute for that, Lord. And so we go from this place and into the season ahead with our eyes on you and trusting that you are going to go with us from this place. Thank you, Lord, and we receive your blessing as we go now in your name. Amen. 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 God bless you.